0: Stop whining, make a bold move, and do something amazing with your 40-plus gay life. Let's get to the show with your tell-it-like-it-is host, Rick Clemens, who does his best to never act like a dick or a diva unless you act like one first. So there's always a light, a light that guides us forward, a light that takes us to that place we think we can never be. Just think about your journey, guys, of coming out of the closet. There was a light on the other side of that closet door. And for each one of us, it's different. It could be a spirituality light. It could be a sexual orientation light. And it could even be a dream light of what you envision your gay life could look like and the gay relationships that you have. But some of you don't believe there's a light. You don't see it. You don't buy into it. You just don't think it's possible. Well, I have a guest today that's going to kind of prove some of that wrong. They have definitely seen the light. They produced a book that's called Light Come Out of the Closet. And it's about, well, a memoir of a gay soul, but he's also going to share some of the lights he saw as a gay man that he didn't really feel like he fit in in places. He was kind of a minority in a minority, so to speak. And I'm going to let him share all that. I'm really excited to have Roger Leslie, Dr. Roger Leslie, on the podcast today, sharing his story, talking about his book, but also as a guy who's also 40, right? I think he's over 40. Yeah, I know he is. (laughs) Um, like kind of just giving us the ins and outs. And I love these kind of conversations because as men over 40, sometimes we get in our heads and we're like, no, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. Well, I think Roger's going to prove you wrong on something around relationships and longevity of relationships. So Roger, welcome to the podcast, man. Glad to have you here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. You have an interesting twist and turn. You got, you've got you got some you know background and education and everything. you got a publishing company, you've written books, all this sort of stuff. And yet all of it kind of came from digging deeper, I would assume, coming deeper into your soul as you came out of the closet. So let's kind of go back to like, you know, when you were a wee little boy. <laughs> no, we don't have to go that far back. But when you were starting to experience like this journey of, okay, I'm coming out, but suddenly as I'm admitting I'm coming out and everything, you had some different views of what it looked like for you to be a gay man. So why don't you kind of take us into that a little
1: bit? So first of all, Rick, I always knew I was gay. From the time that I was a toddler, I knew, Hmm. I didn't necessarily know what it meant or what it was, but I sensed that I felt different from many other people that I was growing up around. And... I was, I was always a very introspective person, so I figured out pretty early that I was gay. Mm. But at the time when I was growing up in the 60s and the 70s, there weren't many examples of what gay was and who gay was. So yep. I had to kind of forge on my own and try to figure it out. The premise of my book, Light Come Out of the Closet, focuses on that dichotomy of what my religion and my family and my society was telling me and what I knew was true of me. And what I struggled with during those early years was if I was always a a rule follower, I wanted to please the adults in my life. I wanted to be the best student I could be for my teachers. I wanted to make my parents proud. And somehow the message I kept getting was, No matter who I was, no matter what the quality of my character, being gay would negate that all. Mm. And so, as a result, I became more and more introverted and I went deeper and deeper into myself. A life saving element for me was I decided early on I wanted to be an author. That was just my dream. And so, I started writing very early. And in that writing process, I got to explore my subconscious. My, the different worlds that exist of, you know, the worlds of possibilities that exist. And in that space of separating myself from society and my family and my religion, I had to figure out who I was on my own and then find a way to be okay with that.
0: And finding a way to be okay with it is like one of the biggest struggles. I know, I know a lot of guys listen, like, yeah, I get that. I totally understand that. But there's this interesting twist in that arena where if you don't actually wrap your head around that and accept it, the journey is so much harder. It's just, I mean, we can say, okay, yes, I'm ready to come out. And I, and maybe the reason I'm bringing this up is I was working with a client a couple of weeks ago on this and I thought we were making a really good headway. And then he actually said, I'm still really struggling to wrap my head around that I'm gay. I said, "Okay, <laughs> halt the horses. We're gonna have to. We're gonna work right here then, because there's no point in moving forward until we can really dig into that." And I know for me, Roger, I had to see myself in many life situations as a gay man, and I like go live it. I had to like get in my mind, okay. Well, if I'm gonna be a gay dad, what does that look like? If I'm going to have a husband, what does that look like for me? If I'm gonna be out and proud in my workspace what does that look like and i know these are thoughts that most people think but i felt like for me and i think what i'm hearing from you is i had to dig really deep into my soul like get underneath everything and go deeper it wasn't just the okay yes i had that thought about it and it's done there's no magic wand but i think it's the digging deeper so as you gave yourself that beautiful permission even at those younger years to dig deeper what was something deep within your soul that just kept like bubbling up so to speak like it uh, that really like solidified yep yep this is what my gay self really looks like what did kind of came up for you
1: so here was a fine distinction that made a huge difference in my perspective of myself and the world i kept seeing and hearing messages about what was wrong and bad about gay And I knew who I was and the kind of person I wanted to be. The moment that I was able to to distinguish between right and wrong, and instead of saying, no, that's wrong, to fine-tuning it to say, no, that's wrong for me, Mm. that made the difference. Because then my whole world didn't have to be wrong. I, I was just freed then to find where did I fit in? so if the messages that i was learning from my family from my society and from the religion that i was raised in if they kept telling me it's wrong it's wrong it's wrong and i kept thinking i don't see that i don't i can't i can't imagine why that would be so wrong for me because i'm doing everything else following all the rules being a decent person right but then when i thought okay those rules i don't need to throw out those rules as if they don't apply to anybody. They just don't apply to me. That's when I needed to realize I have to figure out my rules for myself.
0: I love that. And it as you were talking through that, I it reminded me of so I was raised Seventh day Adventist and very, very, you know, <laughs> almost evangelical religion where, you know, it's this way, we're the only ones going to be saved, all the, you know. And I was petrified. I was petrified of hell and all this sort of stuff. And even, and I went through seventh day Adventist schools all the way through my sophomore year in college. So, I mean, long, long indoctrination. I'm going to actually say that indoctrination. Right. And then I got to college and I started questioning. I was already questioning things prior to that, but college was like, okay, I can actually question, really begin to question things. I'm like, okay, so why are we required to take world religions, but then the twist is we're taking world religions, but we're still the only religion that you know, I'm like, there's not, there's something wrong here. Right. Because I could start to see that even within the seventh day Adventist fundamentals, there were pieces of Buddhism and there were pieces of Catholicism and then, you know, all, which all the religions kind of grow off of each other in their own interesting ways. And it was the first time that I started going to your point, this isn't right for me. This religion is not right for me. It's not working for me. And of course, I was a big hubbub in my family when I finally uttered those words for the first time. And and even to this day, my parents are very, very grounded in there. I wouldn't say they were, they're stout Seventh-day Adventists, but they're grounded in it. We just don't talk about it anymore because they know that I, I, I basically say I'm a guy who has faith in something greater than myself, which really annoys people. (laughs) Like I won't say it. what works for me. And I love that you brought that up, but there's also pieces of your own journey even as you started to step into seeing life as a gay man where how you viewed your relationship and what you saw you know yourself being as a gay man you know in the 80s you started getting a lot of backlash from the community about well this is the kind of relationship i want Tell us a little bit about that. So
1: I've always been a very idealistic person and a very optimistic person. That's my personality. And I thrive in that environment. So I decided early on that I knew what I wanted. Mm -hmm. Once I decided I could acknowledge that I was gay, this big struggle that I had with being gay was I thought that I could never have love. That was the mm-hmm. big issue for me in my childhood, and in my teens. I thought that being gay means I could not be loved and I could not love in this lifetime. That's yep. what that was what made me so depressed. That's what led me into some suicidal thoughts. When I changed my mind about that, then I decided, OK, I'm going to go for the ideal. I want a primary relationship. I want to fall in love. I want to be married. I... I thought early on I wanted children, but then in the early 80s, I thought, well, you know, that's not very realistic for me as a gay man. So I might have to put that that part of the dream on the the back burner because that might not happen. Um, So I was very clear about what I wanted and I wasn't interested in dating anybody who wasn't interested in that or anything. And the backlash that you mentioned was that I was ridiculed tremendously by people, my friends and acquaintances because they kind of scoffed at the idea. It's just like, yeah, you know, good luck with that, Raj. You you keep searching for that and and see how that works out in the gay world. Mm. Well, I realized that those people weren't good connections for me and I mm-hmm. held to what I wanted. And interestingly, um, when I was in undergraduate school, I met someone In one of my education classes, we became fast friends and we remained friends for about, oh, it was almost a year. And I remember we went out one evening. And I I told him about what I wished for that, you know, what I wanted. And I said, you know what, whenever I get married, I want you to be my best man, because you get what I want. You understand what I'm talking about. Little did I know a month later, the two of us would fall in love, and he would end up being my husband.
0: But that's such a narrow point of view for someone to look at what you desire. And to tell you it's wrong. And and, and here's where I have a, a beef with our own community. <laughs> for a community that's like, I just want to be me. I want to do this my way. I want to be seen for who I am and loved for who I am. We sure get critical really quickly on really. What do you think you want? They're like this perfect relationship. It isn't going to happen. And suddenly here we are throwing somebody quote back in a different closet about relationships. Like, no, no. If you're going to be gay, this is the way you do gay. And this is how you're going to have relationships. I think it's, finally started to change that's my a little bit there's still people are like nah, it never works you know but i mean you're 40 some years in 40 did you say 40 years into your relationship with this yep yeah and we're we're at 22 and people are like wow i'm like yes so of course you know the joke yeah in gay years that's like you know (laughs) it's like 100 years right but um but there's a beauty to that of being willing to go do the work, being willing to say, this is what I really want. And I, I think, by the way, you just said yes. It is work, boys, men. It is not easy. But any relationship, I mean, think of your best friendships, guys. Are they a piece of cake? Probably not. You've probably been through ups and downs with your best friends. You, you Sometimes you're just like, I'm so over them. Other times you just can't wait to be with them. But I think this is the piece that there is this expectation around gay men, that gay men can't do relationships. And it's so not true. It's kind of sad, actually.
1: One statement that I think is very empowering is when you are clear on your yes, it's easy to say no. Mm -hmm. Once you get clear on what you want, then anything that doesn't fit into that paradigm, it's easy to just say no. So, for example, when I was dating, It was clear that if this person I was seeing or interested in wasn't in the the same wavelength of what I was looking for, I I didn't date that person. That wasn't what I was looking for. And so it meant there were many lonely nights where I didn't do anything or I didn't have anything to do because I wasn't interested in just going out and meeting people randomly. So... That was part of the price, but I knew what I wanted. And I knew that in order to get there, I needed to say no to certain other things. And so it was easy to say no, because I knew what didn't fit.
0: Mm -hmm. There's a book by um, Shonda Rhimes, the um, producer, writer of Grey's Anatomy and all all that stuff. Her book is called A Year of Saying Yes. And it was one of the books that really had a huge impact on me. Like, yeah, what if you started saying yes to the right things and no to the wrong things? And it's really powerful. And I see this all the time in the work I do with gay men and relationships and careers and all this sort of stuff. It's interesting because a lot of guys, even when they're like, I'm ready, I need something that's more passionate or purposeful in my life. I want a career that really, okay, well... (laughs) What do you keep saying yes to? You keep saying yes to the paycheck, not saying money isn't important. I'm not going to knock that. But if you're only saying yes to the money and you're saying no to what's the passion and the purpose, it's kind of on you. And I think this is a big similar situation where when when you don't believe you can actually have a long term relationship or you don't believe there's anybody else out there. And this is why I wanted to have this conversation, because I think you bring all this to the table. Even we're going to dive into the, you know, even deeper to the book and what you do behind the scenes and the publishing and all that. There's a whole lot of you saying yes to what you want and no to the things that don't align with it. And it's a, it's a human thing that we do. I'm going to admit that it's not just gay men, but I have to say that I feel like as gay men, sometimes we have gotten so used to just saying yes, 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 because we need the acceptance. We need to feel wanted and seen. We So anything that gives us that I'm finally part of something and then suddenly we wake up and go, well, what I've been saying yes to still isn't fulfilling me instead of saying no to some things that don't fulfill you. And I think that's the message you just really clearly articulated, Roger, is this being able to say no is a really
1: powerful space. Yes, I agree. And, you know, sometimes we do need to say yes to a lot of things until we get clear on what we want. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we're not sure about what we want. So we try different things to determine what it is that we want. But once we get to the point where we know, then a simple rule to follow is don't settle. Don't settle for anything less than what you're looking for. Gotcha.
0: So as you didn't settle for your guy, what have you learned throughout the years, 40 years together That's a long time. But what's some things that you have learned that really make it work?
1: I think the most important key to a successful marriage or relationship of any kind is just allow the, your partner to be your partner. Uh, let mm. that person be whoever he or she is, and then be yourself in that same space. Mm. Nothing is more anxiety ridden than someone who always wants you to keep changing for them. So if we can affirm the other person for who they are and just let them be them and then we be us, people are happy. People want to, they feel safe in that space. They can grow in that space because they're free to be themselves. But in order to do that, you have to learn how to get all right with yourself. Is Everything is an inside job. Everything about a relationship is working on ourselves first. I have to work on myself and accepting myself before I know how to accept somebody else. So it's always a constant stage of how am I growing? How am I improving as a person? What am I bringing to the relationship? What am I bringing to the world? It's always if I'm working on myself, then the The relationship can stay healthy. But so many
0: people <clears throat> don't want to work on themselves because it's painful, it's scary, it's vulnerable. It's all these things that we can throw in front of us as an excuse of why we can't do it. But the beauty is the more we do it, the better we're able, as you just said, to step in and be alongside that partner. Now, where it gets tough, and I think you'll probably agree with me on this one, Roger, is... It's tough when you're doing the work and your other half isn't. Cause then that becomes a whole nother conversation point that we have to have. So how, how do you feel like you've handled those moments where, and maybe you haven't, maybe your partner works on his stuff as much as you do, but there has to have been some moments where you felt
1: like, okay, I'm doing work, I'm doing work, but wait, I'm the only one doing the work. So it's always our focus on ourselves. I believe that anybody we encounter and anything we encounter is just a mirror of what's going on inside of us. So if I'm seeing fault with somebody else, it's time for me to look within and see, okay, what am I unhappy about myself that I would project onto that person, my displeasure? Why would mm-hmm. I want to judge someone else when all that person is doing is showing me a piece of myself that needs working that needs to be worked on right now? And so, so long as I'm in the process of working and growing and I'm kind and compassionate with myself, it only comes to, it, it only seems logical that I can be more naturally compassionate with other people. If I'm trying to change other people, I'm missing the, the source of the problem. If I see some fault in somebody else, it's because I'm projecting onto them something I need to work on in myself. It always comes back to us, always. But
0: if we don't let it come back to us,
1: then what happens? We're forever frustrated because nobody is going to change his or her life to please us for very long. They may try, but if that's not who they are, they're going to resent us after a while. So if we're trying to change other people, then it's it's just going to be an effort in futility because it's not going to work.
0: And that's where it gets really frustrating because then we are in this futile state of doing, trying, doing, trying, doing, trying. One of the things that I have found is the more that I give myself permission, okay, I'm going to do it a couple of different ways. The more I give myself permission to go do the work, Mm -hmm. I also give my partner permission to have some grace to go do the work. And if it isn't working, then I also give myself permission to in a very loving way say can we have a conversation about something. This is where the hard work starts. And I'm not going to I'm not going to sugarcoat it at all because I think it's the thing that most of us avoid like the plague is we don't want to have those conversations.
1: And Rick, what I think is beautiful about what you said consistently and several times in that description is you give yourself permission. When Mm -hmm. you're in the mindset of giving yourself permission to grow, to learn, to become better, you are in turn mirroring that in your relationships with others. As you give yourself permission to grow and improve, you're also giving that same freedom to whoever it is that you're in, in relationship with. Mm-hmm. And that's how you grow. That's how you stay together and have a healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. At least that seems to be working for us. Well, and
0: I think it does for most couples who are in. And I know no, there is no relationship that's 100% perfect. So let's just be honest about that. But I think when you give yourself permission to have those conversations and to be open. And, and I'm going to use the word fearless. When you're fearless about being candid in the right way which is the tougher part, like, okay, you did this. Are you a freaking idiot? You know, that isn't being candid. It's like, so can I share something with you that's bothering me? And I know it may be something that's just bothering me, but I need to share this with you so that I can kind of get it off my chest and work through it. I always have a better conversation with my husband when I put it in that way. Then, okay, you know what? I'm tired of you doing
1: this. I'm tired of, you know, I I I think the people who have the healthiest relationships are those who have the courage to be vulnerable with one another. Mm -hmm. If you Mm -hmm. allow yourself to open up and share what hurts, what concerns you, what confuses you, not about that person, but about what's happening in your life and maybe in your relationship. If you put it in the context of this is how I'm perceiving this, this is how I'm seeing this situation, rather than. I have the right paradigm for how this should work and you need to change so that it's fixed. Instead, it's like, this is how I'm seeing things. Where are you coming from? How are you feeling about this? What's going on with you in this scenario? Because for me, I'm struggling. And when you can admit Mm -hmm. that you're struggling, someone wants to help you. When you When you attack somebody there, of course, their natural inclination is to be defensive. And that's where the communication breaks down. Mm -hmm.
0: But when the communication breaks down, that's the thing that I always share with my husband. Literally, okay, time out. Let's admit we're having a communication breakdown right now we're literally we're not communicating so and and we have some ways that we do that we like i'm going to give you some space i'm going to take some space whatever it is not like storm out of the house it's been a long time since that's happened but um like okay and there's times that i've also learned because i've done the work it's like is this really worth is this even worth fighting is there any reason to even go here because when i don't go forward. And I, but I've had that pause in my own mind, Roger, like, wait, is this even, is this worth it? Is this such a big deal that it's like putting the quote relationship in a, in a tizzy right now for this? Most of the time when I ask myself that question, no, it's not very simple. So I'll use a really good example. We just had, (laughs) we just had the carpets cleaned in our house and So you have to wait a little while, you know. Obviously, like four or five hours for stuff to be done. And by the time my husband got home, I'm like, okay, we're we're at the four hour mark. Let's put everything back in. He's like, I I just let's wait. And I'm kind of like, okay. In my mind, I was already on my agenda. Like, if this gets done, then I can do this and make dinner, and then we do that, right? And, And I could tell he was really tired. I'm like, okay, hold on. Does it have to be done right now? No. Do I have to put everything back in my office where I'm working right now? No. And I thought, okay, it's 5:30. What if we just make sure by eight o'clock we go put the bedroom back together? Because we really only have like we just have our bedroom in my office to kind of worry about. I could have made a huge big deal out of that because it was this is what Rick had planned. Rick had been home. Rick, Rick had been home dealing with the carpet cleaners and the construction guys outside trying to do his work. And everywhere I'm like, oh my God, I'm so tired of noise, right? I just wanted my world back together. But when I looked at him, I could tell that there was something going on for him that made me go, pause, stop, think. How important is it that right now at 5.30, everything needs to be put back together? It didn't. And that's just a really good example of like being very self-aware And diving in and asking yourself the bigger questions rather than, okay, this has to happen now. This has to happen now.
1: This has to happen now. And a great illustration that you make with that example, Rick, is you really clearly showed the difference in your two personalities. Mm -hmm. Usually there's one in the relationship who's the doer, who's the organizer, who's the, you know, the, the gets things done. And then there's the, the other partner who is more leisurely and, and more laid back. The, the reason that I think your relationship is working so well is because you do have these two opposite personality types. If you were both like you or you were both like him, you drive each other crazy. And mm-hmm. so you're attracted to someone who balances you out. That's how you pick your partners subconsciously. So yeah. it's a good thing that he wasn't so on board with, oh, yes, I agree. We have to get this done because that level of intensity uh, in the household all the time would be toxic yeah as would the opposite if you never got anything done if you always just you know let everything slide and let everything go and did it for another left it for another time there would be no balance in the relationship but you two it sounds like you two are balancing each out very well and what you did in that scenario is you curbed your own needs of getting things done that moment and you acknowledged that he was tired. That shows sensitivity to where he is. So he just wasn't in the same space. And you're wise to realize, yeah, you were home all day with the noise and the clutter and the and the congestion. And of course you wanted things back in order and organized. He wasn't. He, you know, he was gone. Now he's home. He's not in that same space. So recognizing that in yourself first and then acknowledging space for your partner, for your husband is, was a great way to work on it. And you're right. The things that seem so intensely important to us at certain moments, when we have better perspective, they're not so important after all.
0: So tell us a little bit about the book. Why did this book come into being for you? Now I know we're switching gears from husbands to the books, but, but there's a, there's, there's a, there's a, a, there's an interesting twist here because I'm going to make some assumptions. The little bit I do know about the book. Um, that even the relationship stuff has probably been incorporated in some different ways to like really getting to the, your own gay soul. Like, because you can't dive in without having these experiences. I mean.
1: So this memoir takes place from the time I was uh, about 11 years old till I was about 16 or 17. So this is mm -hmm. before I was even in a relationship or it even come out. So here's how the book came about. Early on, when I was about 16, I, I was raised Catholic and I just realized this wasn't a fit for me. This this wasn't my family's mm-hmm. remains Catholic. I'm just not. And it wasn't a fit for me. And so for the longest time, although occasionally I would go back to mass or something if the family wanted to go. I saw that period of my life, that dark night of my soul as a painful part of my life that I didn't want to return to, that I didn't want to explore. It's just like, okay, I passed that. It's behind me. I'm sorry you know that that it was such a struggle, but thanks to the struggle, I got where I am. Then I had the realization that although it was such a struggle for me at the time, the struggle was within me and that perhaps my Catholic background helped give me some of the moral foundation and some of the disciplines that enabled me to find myself and have the courage to say that that's not a good fit for me. So I went in writing the book. You know, I have a philosophy when I teach my my writing students or my coaching students and my the, the authors that I publish. I say, don't write what you know, write what you want to know, because that's what's interesting. You find out for yourself in the writing process. So I really wanted to explore this concept that maybe this really strict background that I was raised in that felt so painful at the time helped me become who I am rather than kept me from being who I really wanted to be until I was about 16 or 17. So I went in from that perspective. It's just like, what did I learn from this experience? What did I go through? And so that's the the journey, the spiritual journey of this book. It's what I was learning from my society, my family, and my religion and how I had construed things in such a way, how I was interpreting things was causing the pain and the discomfort. Because of course I had a secret that no one else knew about me. And that was my sexual orientation.
0: So from that, that journey and diving in and everything. So I'm going to tie this back to your relationship with your husband. Without that experience, do you think you would be able to see deeper stuff in your relationship that you're now better able to work on?
1: Absolutely not. I think... You know, And with the great thing about it is I call this period the dark night of my soul. Having gone through it, I mean, I was just very depressed. I became suicidal because I thought I'm never going to be able to love or be loved. So what's the point of living? I never attempted suicide, but fortunately I was able to funnel those suicidal thoughts into the writing that I was doing. I had characters who were, you know, I would write about characters who were suicidal and that really helped filter that out. So I didn't ever take action on it. But having gone through that, and then emerged from it, and that's the big climactic scene of this book is my emerging from that. Everything since then, it's just like, yeah, I've dealt with much worse than this. When I was a kid, I had you know I had no idea what resources I had to handle anything. So although we've dealt with some really traumatic experiences in our life and some tragic experiences in our life, compared to what I went through when I was a preteen and a teenager, nothing has right. had the same impact because mm-hmm. I went through that. And I came out of it on my own with nobody's help. I had to struggle through that on my own because I wouldn't tell anybody. And instead of telling anybody, and one of the processes in this book that I describe is I unilaterally just started getting rid of all the friends I had because I thought they would figure out that I was gay. I thought, Mm -hmm. well, if I can figure it out, I better get rid of all my friendships. So by the time I was a freshman in high school, I had nobody in my life other than my immediate family because I'd, Mm. I'd gotten rid of all of them. Cause I was afraid yeah. they were going to figure it out.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that is so, uh, that is so consistent with so many people, my own experience and so many other people's like, okay, I got to really like m- remove people from my life that I think might figure this out. And the most interesting thing for me, Roger is um, right before I came out, I worked, I was pretty high up in a software company and uh, all my team knew they all knew. I mean, my, God, they took me, we were in Atlanta for a um, trade show. And the show didn't start till like Sunday. So we were there on Saturday. So it was Pride weekend in Atlanta. And they're like, come on, come to Pride with us. I'm like, well, I can go to Pride with that crowd. Or I can go to the titty bars with the straight guys. I'm like, I don't want to go to the titty bar. (laughs) I'm sorry, that just... But that was a weird, that was one of those weird moments. Like, well, if I don't go to the titty bar and I'm going to go with the gay crowd as people. And I'm like, you know what? I just, hey, I can, I've been playing this off. I, I've never been to a pride event. What is that? You know, of course I knew what the hell it was. Right. But I was like, I can't believe I'm actually going to go do this. Right. Well, So here I am, the strike guy with all. the. And actually it was, I was a straight guy. There was a straight gal on our team and then two or three of the gay guys. I'm like, okay, you know. Of course, my dirty little secret was I was crushing on, you know, the gay guys on the team, right? So I'm like, okay, let's figure this out. And so we go, and it was really beautiful. So this was, you know, early, so late 90s. So it was when the quilt was always going around at all the pride events. So I got to see the AIDS quilt, which was amazing. And got to see Atlanta Pride, which was a trip unto itself. I'm like, man, these Southerners, they sure know <laughs> they sure know how to do a pride, right? Um and I didn't, that was my first pride. I'm like, holy crap, this is so old. Oh. And of course my head's going, wow, maybe I should be thinking about what this life looks like. And of course we're drinking all day. Right. And then they take me to a gay bar. I'm like, I'm kind of, th- no, no, come on. You know, I'm like, oh I, I, yeah, but I'm a straight guy. Nah. Next thing I know, of course they're like, you know, you want the bartender. I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, we know you want the, bar- and by then I'm pretty drunk. I'm like, Okay, well, you know, I've never experienced, which was a total lie, of course. And so he starts flirting with me, you know, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this cute little bartender cub, which now I can say it was a cute cub, furry cub. I'm like, oh my gosh, he's so cute, right? I'm not saying that out loud. (laughs) And they set him up with me. And I'm like, I know I'm straight. And finally, one of my team members said, get real, Rick. I'm like, this isn't going to happen, right? Well, I'm super, super intoxicated. Go out back to my hotel room. I literally at three in the morning, I hear this knock on my door. I'm like, who the hell is knocking on my door? It's the bartender. The rest is history. But um, but it was it is one of those interesting moments where we've all had this shame, fear, et cetera. Right. They're like, don't let him see us. And then suddenly I'm like, next day on the trade show floor. Not only was I very hungover. <laughs> which in my position, I should not have been hung over, but I, I, you know, I was like, okay, I got to hold it together for eight hours. Right. I suddenly found myself almost shunning, like almost shunning them, even though they're like, Hey, how was it? I'm like, what are you talking about? Oh, you know, and I felt really bad. So it got to the point with that group where they didn't, they wouldn't have anything to do with me. And suddenly I'm like, wait, wait, I don't want to lose these people. So I got in that weird space of I don't want to lose these people, but I can't. And shortly after that, I did finally come out. And one of them actually said to me, like, you really pissed me off. You you blatantly went with us, hung out, had a great time. First time we actually saw Rick smile, because that was one of the things that everybody said, you never smile. You never smile. You're very serious. I'm like, well, of course, I'm serious because I'm living a double life here, right? But to your point, this was one of those times I almost burnt some bridges, which those bridges I didn't want to burn. Other bridges I was keeping perfectly away from this other space, right? So that I could protect myself and make sure I didn't screw up. And I think many of us do this and then we get to our 40 plus lives and we're continuing to do it. And I don't think a lot of gay men realize how much what we shielded when we were younger we bring right into our adulthood and we keep using it It may not be as prevalent, but there's certain spaces of our lives. We shield it. We don't want anybody to know. Now your story could have been one of those like, okay, well, I don't really want to talk about being married, you know, together for 40 years because people are going to think that's really weird. That could be something you could have carried forward. Like, yeah, I've been with my guy. You never, you know, except, you know, people are going to go, Oh, how long have you been together? But these things that we hide as gay men, and you got to ask yourself, do I really need to hide that? Do I really need to hide that?
1: Yeah. Well, and again, as, you know, as I told you earlier, when you know your yes, it's easy to say no. Well, mm-hmm. when you know what you're most proud of, yes. then it's easy to be open about that. And I am most proud of my relationship with my husband, Jerry.
0: Hmm. See, you beat me to it. I was going to say, okay, well, tell us what you're most proud of. So, But you went there. So that's very amazing. So what's next for you? You got the new book out. Give a shout out again. You tell us the title.
1: So the, the title of the book is Light Come Out of the Closet. It'll be available uh, June 6th. We're awesome. doing the launch on June 6th for Pride at the beginning of Pride Month. Awesome. And, uh, actually during COVID I, you know, lost nearly all of my uh, editing clients and my coaching clients. So I used that opportunity to write, write, write. So I have about 10 more books coming down the pike at different stages over the next few years. So that's, that's the dream. That's always been the dream to be a prolific author. And I'm excited that that's where it's going right now.
0: Very cool. Well, we will look forward to all those books coming out and having you be a part of our world whenever you want to share, Roger. I'm so glad you connected. We connected by uh, through a, a kind of a booking agency. And I'm like, hey, he sounds like a really great fit. I'm so glad we did. And um, you know, I'm glad this book is coming out. And happy pride, everybody. Uh, I think this is a great way to talk about pride and where we're at. and, Thanks for being part of it. If somebody wants to connect with you, what's the best place for them to connect? What's your website?
1: My website is my name, Roger Leslie, R-O-G-E-R-L-E-S-L-I-E.com, rogerleslie.com. Everything's there.
0: Awesome. Well, again, happy pride, everyone. And Roger, thank you so much for sharing. Good luck with the book. Can't wait to see it out there. And um, thanks again for being a guest and being part of our world. And guys, I hope this has inspired you to realize what you really want You just got to make it happen and go vision it and bring it to life. So thanks again, Roger, for being
1: a guest. Thank you, Rick. It was great.
0: That's a wrap for 40 plus gay men, gay talk, where size doesn't matter. We drop our bullshit, get over our screwed up fears, make bold moves and live life without apologies. Don't forget to join us on Facebook at 40 plus gay men, gay talk, where the conversations continue.